As you're being seated, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, Father, would you, by your grace, apply, apply the word to our hearts, may it sink deep into our minds, may it come out the fingertips that we work with. Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we continue through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse, last week, I uh, titled the sermon, and, and really this week is part two of that sermon, but uh, this is not your, not your hallmark religion, hallmark with a copyright symbol at the end. And last week, uh, the subtitle was uh, A Bloody Religion, and not, with, not to be said with a uh, British voice, unless you prefer, uh, but indeed a literal bloody religion. And how we desperately need that religion, that that blood says something about our need, and that blood says something about God's provision for that need. This week is, the subtitle is a new creation, a new creation. So not your hallmark religion, this bloody religion, but a new creation. Let me begin with this thought. If some of you are familiar with the Catholic faith, uh, then you will understand what I'm saying here. If not, you can ask Pastor Greg later. Some of us live in a functional purgatory. Some of us live in a functional purgatory. Let me explain what I mean by that. Thankful that the wrath of God was absorbed And then with blinders on our eyes, waiting for Jesus' return. Today, though, so in between the wrath absorbed on the cross and the return of Christ to be next, today and tomorrow, between those times, we sort of live in a limbo. You know, I guess I'll do these Christian things. I guess this is what I should do. I, I suppose I should be a little more like Christ. I guess I should believe the gospel. Then I'll be more like Jesus. A life kind of characterized as maybe half-hearted Christianity or, or maybe a discouraged Christianity, maybe floundering Now, let me make sure that I'm painting this picture correctly for you. I do mean, but I don't only mean lazy, don't expect too much, of, uh, don't expect too much from me, Christians. I, I do mean that category, but I also mean the striving and faithful Christians who are truly thankful for the penalty taken at the cross and are truly awaiting Jesus but don't live with a vigor between now and then. They live instead with a, a floundering, or as I talked about a few weeks ago, a, a low-grade fever, a low-grade depression. Like, what, what about this time in between? The Scriptures have much to say about this time in between, but I think many of us have a functional gospel that started and stopped with the cross. We have a functional gospel that started and stopped 
at the cross. So that's what I'm really going to press on that thought there as we move along. So great, in one sense, great, Jesus paid the price for my sins. And we got that, and we should be very thankful for that and celebratory of that and remember that a lot. But if I could frame it this way, when we think about the atonement, when we think about the gospel, there's kind of three primary components to that. You have the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. So briefly, to to kind of describe each one of those very briefly so that I can set our conversation in its proper place. First of all, the cross, when I say, when I speak of wrath absorbed, or the fancy term for that is propitiation. Wrath absorbed. The penalty was paid. The substitute, Jesus, took upon himself the payment for our sins. But then we have the resurrection, where the payment is accepted. That's the picture in the resurrection that God has, God has pleased. He's approved this. That death has now been overcome. And now the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that we now have to live. Again, praise God for this. The cross, praise God. The resurrection, praise God. But the third part is equally important, yet tends to get very little airtime, and that is the ascension, which is what this passage is talking about, is the ascension of Christ, the part where he leaves earth, enters into heaven's throne room. The ascension is talking about where the the payment is applied. Where, where God, where Christ enter into the throne room, where, where it is paid, where the payment that he made on the cross is now being effectually applied. It's being put into place. The blood is being sprinkled. The items of the room, and I'll explain those in a bit, are being washed. So in the first two items... They symbolize the accomplishment of redemption and its availability. But here, in this moment, we see what this symbolizes is the actual application of redemption. The applying of it. The effectual reality. My assessment is this for us as a church. That we live as though the culmination or the apex of atonement was the cross when we should live believing that the ascension is the culmination of redemption. And that's really what I'm going to argue for and then try to apply this morning. That we live as though the cross is the culmination of atonement when we should live as though the ascension is the culmination. That it doesn't mean that the other two are not important. That's the furthest thing from what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we, we focus a lot on the cross to the neglect of the resurrection, but then also to the neglect of the ascension of Christ. And it's a whole picture. Without the ascension and the entrance into the Holy of Holies, without that work, the first two are of no benefit to us. 
So I have for you this morning two points for you to believe and one point for you to go do. The first point is this. The new creation begins at atonement. The new creation begins at atonement or at the atonement. Now let me read for you verses 24 through 26. And there's two items here that I want you to zero in on. I, they're in bold in, in my writing here, but I will uh, try to embolden them with my, uh, with my voice. 9, 24 through 26. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not its own, or not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, as I work through this, let me define some terms for us. What do I mean by new creation? I have a, a broad definition of that that kind of narrows into a particular application. What I mean by that is the broken thing, broadly, the broken things of this world being made new and whole as they were meant to be. So, so, so God restoring the earth, this new creation that will resemble Eden, but be even better. Chief among that restorative work is God's people. Chief among that new creation is God's people. I'm thinking here persons no longer struggling with sin, magistrates trusting the Lord in their legislation, creation set free from the curse, and so on. New creation, that's what I have in mind as we think about new creation beginning at the atonement. But I think many of us, back to where I, I set this up in the introduction, many of us live as though new creation is something we're purely waiting on. It's something that's purely future, something that will eventually get there. It'll eventually begin. Now, indeed, in its fullest sense, yes, new creation in its being completed, is a future reality. But we live, though, often as though the new creation is only a future reality. Functionally, you know, Jesus paid for my sin, but new creation is coming, Hopefully, and hopefully it comes soon. So I'm just going to kind of buy my time between now and then. But new creation is not just a future reality reality. As in all of history hinges on the event of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. All of human history. It's the, it's the pivot point, if you will. It's like the, like the teeter-totter, you know? Like one person's up in the air, that's the current moment of history. And then the cross is that, that middle point. And, and, and then teeter-totter goes the other way. We're now on the other side of the, the teeter-totter. Or if you prefer a, a book analogy here. It's the blank page, although not 
functionally blank. It's the blank page in the middle of the book between parts one and part two. It's the pivot point. St. Augustine, in his book, The City of God, said this, there is one event in history that is unrepeatable by, very, by its very nature, namely the death of the Son of God for the forgiveness of our sins. By its nature, this event could happen only once. The decisive point, he goes on, the decisive point of history was the death of Christ upon which everything turns. You can think about it this way. I, this is hopefully a, a helpful um, concept for you. Before the cross, we would call that the age of death. The age of death. So from the beginning of human history to the death of Christ on the cross is the age of death. So what you have, you have at the beginning of that, you have born into the garden and born into life, man and woman quickly fall into sin, bringing what? Death. Immediately in the story of Genesis chapter 3 and 4, you see the death of innocence, the death of trust. You see the physical death of an animal sacrificed to cover Adam and Eve. And it's not shortly after that that you see death spreading in the death of Abel at the hands of his brother Cain. Then the story continues, death, death, and more death. Then we get to the cross, and we know from other scriptures that finally death is defeated through the very death of Christ. Death is gone. And what's restored in that moment? Life. Eternal life is restored in that moment, ushering in what we would call the age of life, then from the cross to the judgment of God. Christ defeats death and secures eternal life for his people. The slaves are set free from bondage. The death that once hung over our heads is now taken away. It's the age of life. We live in the age of life. That's, that began at the cross. You could call that the new creation. It began at the atonement. Now, instead of everything we touch, we kill, now, as God's people, we can actually bring life to the things that we touch. We can actually bring life as husbands to our marriage and to our homes and to our kids. We can bring life to our jobs, our vocations. We can bring life to our church family. We build houses. We work vocations. We tend our properties in ways that bring life, flourishing, joy, goodness, and beauty in a way that, that could not happen prior to the cross and the atonement. How? How? We live under his lordship. We live with his laws. We live with his renewal and his bringing life. We live with Christ's dividing and his conquering, his maturation in our lives. We live with hopefulness. We live with expectation and eagerness. 
If that new creation has begun now, it is not something we just wait for in the future, then we're a part of that now. We're a part of that work now. We live in the age of life, the new creation. Now, I want to begin to show you how I see this in this passage. Next, the culmination is the ascension. So it talked about new creation begins at the work of the atonement, which I talked about being three pieces. But now the culmination is the ascension. Look at 23 through 24. Thus it was necessary for the copies of heaven, copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not only... Whole, not, uh, sorry, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. All right, now, as, uh, now, as we get into this, like, copies and these heavenly things, like, what is he talking about here? As we get into that, I want you to walk into that conversation or into that uh, thought there with what I said in the intro. So let me repeat that for you. Many of us live like, thank God Jesus took the wrath. Thank God Jesus is coming back. And then I guess I'll do some Christian things in between then and now and then. Or back then and the future coming of Christ. I'm just kind of buying my time. Like, we talk about the cross, the cross, and some of us have a functional cross-only atonement. I think this is part of the reason why, or, or I think this is part of the reason why we don't understand that the ascension of Christ is the culmination of the atonement, that it's the apex, it's the pinnacle, not the cross and not the resurrection. As important and glorious and, and amazing as those are, it's a package deal. But if you could put a highlight on one, it's the ascension. And, if, and here's the deal. If we live as though the past forgiveness that comes through the cross, like we just, we just live there, that wrath has been absorbed, Jesus is coming back, then, and we don't live understanding the ascension, then it's going to have this, this low-grade fever effect, if you will, on us between then and the future. So let's talk about now this like purified heavenly things. So that's what I want you to bring into this, uh, that, that idea of, of what do I do in between those two events. I want to show you how the culmination as the ascension is going to be important there. So he talks about these, these heavenly things being purified. Now, if you remember back in Hebrews uh, weeks ago, the, and even recent weeks, that, that this, like, there's this old covenant where these rituals and blood that had to, that had to be done in this covenant, and then, but those are shadows of this heavenly covenant. That Christ does. That's, that's again part of the conversation here. That's part of what's happening in verse 23 and 24. So here's the question you have to ask about 23 and 24 if you're paying attention to what he's saying. Here's the question you should immediately ask. How could Jesus walk into God's heaven 
and purify anything. I thought everything in heaven was already pure. That should be your question. If you're reading with discerning eyes. So then the question is, which, which I'd agree, that's a great question, and I agree with the statement. Everything in heaven's already purified. So what's happening then? What does this mean? Now, now to help us get there, you have to understand that in the tabernacle, there was things like the lampstand, the table of showbread, an altar of incense, and of course the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I don't think in in this situation, that's when he says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Those heavenly things he's referring to there is the list that I just talked about. The lampstand, the table, the altar of incense. Those would be chief examples of these copies of the heavenly things in verse 23. He says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are the copies of the true things. So he's talking about the tabernacle there. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Listen, I, I don't think that those things, so the, the, the table, the lampstand, the altar, are in heaven literally, but what they represent is important and is crucial. Those items, ultimately, so if if you're taking notes, those items, the lampstand, the table, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, they, they represent God's relationship with man and man's relationship with God. Last week we talked about this, this barrier between us and God being sin. Well, these things represent God's communing with man and man's communing with God. For example, I'll walk through each one. The ark represents man's moral status before God. I don't have time to get into all the picture, but you remember, like, inside the ark of the covenant is God's law, which represents God's character. On top of that was the cover called the mercy seat. And the cherubim looking down through the mercy seat was to resemble God looking down upon man and at his law. And so they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat so that, again, symbolically, that as the angels would look down through, as God would look down through at his law and man, he would see man covered with a sacrificial blood. So the ark represents man's status before God, justified or not justified. The lampstand refers to God's revealing light, like his his directional light, his light, his goodness shining upon them. You have the table of showbread. Intimate fellowship with the living God is the picture there. Dining together. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper each week. That's why, that's why Jesus picks up on this with the Lord's Supper before he dies. He's resembling, he's showing this picture. He's pointing back to this, this picture of getting to dine with God. Then you have the altar of incense, which spoke of the privilege of access in prayer. 
this incredible ability to speak to God in prayer. Now with that, so keep that in the back of your mind, man's greatest problem is not our relationship with others, it's not our church, it's not our finances, it's not our emotions, it's not our jobs. Our greatest problem is that we have transgressed God's holy law. That's our greatest problem. And one of the biggest disasters in our current day is many churches who don't ever want to talk about God's law. But that is our greatest problem. We have transgressed God's law. Our problem is that we have sinned against a holy God. And that holy God is represented in his law. Not just his law. Certainly Christ comes and he's the exact imprint of that. But he does what? He fulfills the law. So he lives the law out perfectly. So that means those two things together give us this wonderful picture. But our greatest problem is that we've transgressed God's expectations. But as long as Satan or our flesh can keep us distracted from this reality, then he can keep us and our flesh can keep us in chains. Pastorally, I'd say this, it's amazing to me how people will walk so poorly with the Lord and get so fixated on things that are not the problem. You see people make mountains out of molehills. And the first place that my mind goes, and I wish theirs would too, is that Satan has you distracted from the actual problem. I'm not just talking about someone who, who doesn't know the Lord and doesn't follow. I'm talking about many of you. The temptation for myself. Why? Because it's easier to deal with that molehill, especially when you think it's a mountain, than it is to deal with the insurmountable problem that is our transgression against the law. That one makes us feel inferior, incapable, crushed. The molehills that we turn into mountains make us feel awesome and spectacular and powerful and grand. Why? Because a lot of those you and I can deal with but this one we can't deal with. So it's really easy for us to get distracted. As I walk and listen to people all the time who have lost sight of this reality, our problem is that we are transgressors of God's holy law. The greatest problem is that we stand in judgment before his holy throne. We're in jeopardy of eternal damnation. That's the problem. Now, back to those examples, those, those heavenly things he's referring to there, the lampstand, the, the table, the, the uh, altar of incense. All of those items in the tabernacle not ju- don't just represent our relationship with God, but they represent privileges, not rights. Those are privileges. Intimate fellowship with the living God, access and prayer, God's revealing and guiding light, 
And indeed, they're privileges that you and I don't deserve. Indeed, because we're sinners, we must be denied those things. We must be denied. God would not be just if he was to avail himself favorably to the unjust. So God has to withhold those things. And he does so gladly because that's just. These are privileges, not rights. But the picture being painted here, right? So hopefully you've got those pieces in your head. The picture being painted for us here in Hebrews is of Jesus entering that heavenly room with those items, okay? The, the, the altar and the table and the ark. And what's he doing in those room, in that room? He's walking around with his blood and sprinkling it on the altar of incense and sprinkling it on the lampstand and sprinkling it on the Ark of the Covenant. It's a picture of Jesus redeeming nothing other than our standing and status before God and securing our place in his family. That's the picture. It's him dealing with our greatest problem. It's him granting us access to all those privileges like Adam had, but better. Now listen, you show me someone distracted by someone stupid. Or something stupid, and I'll show you someone who cares very little for the privileges he has through Jesus. See, Jesus redeems us unto these privileges, makes us capable to have these privileges. Like, listen, as a follower of God, to, to pray to him is a privilege that didn't come to you by anything other than Jesus' blood being sprinkled, being shed. God's light upon your life is not a privilege that you and I earned, but something that was sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Here's the points I want you to connect. That sprinkling, that change of status, that new creation began then. Not, it will not just begin at the second coming. It's a reality for us now. That new life began then. It's not something we await on. Let me give you some examples. Now, for, for those who have trusted in the blood of Christ and the resurrection and the ascension, when God turns to the lampstand and sees the sprinkled blood, he gladly shines his light to the sinner. Did you hear me? 
he gladly shines his light for you. He doesn't look on you with disgust. He doesn't look on you with, well, I'm not going to give him my light because he's a sinner. But he looks on you with the blood of Christ and says, I will gladly shine my light for you. The table of bread. God now receives and feeds us because the blood of Christ. The same is true of prayer. God now now hears our prayers. Listen, this is the culmination of the turning point, not the cross. The cross is where this work is done and, and, and the wrath is absorbed, the resurrection, death is defeated. Now the blood is applied. The blood is sprinkled. It's placed upon us. And I think that is the problem, particularly for those of you in this room who are truly, faithfully loving the Lord and seeking to follow Him. Here's what I think your big struggle is. You fail to live each day believing that the blood has been applied, that it's been sprinkled. Instead, you live in shame, you live in unforgiveness and bitterness or depression, discouragement. But listen to me the blood didn't stay up on the cross. The blood didn't even stay in the grave or even on this earth. This blood didn't just drip down from the altar and flow out the ground of the tabernacle. But Jesus walked into the Holy of Holies in heaven and sprinkled his blood all over yours and my standing and relationship with God. That's what he did. So when you think, when you're walking each day and, man, and, and Satan and guilt and shame and, 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 and a lot of that, like shame and guilt, we should feel, we should recognize it when we've sinned, but then we should take that sin to the Lord and we should remind ourselves that Christ's blood was sprinkled over it, that it's been washed clean, that I've been forgiven. But you are now forgiven. This is the thing I want to drive home. Again, some of us have a cross-only gospel. A Jesus-absorbed-the-wrath-only gospel. Some of us have added the resurrection to that, and so now you have a cross and resurrection gospel that Jesus absorbed the wrath, and, and that now I have the power to live righteously. But, but we're lacking, what many of us are lacking is a gospel that includes the ascension. That the blood has been effectually placed upon your relationship with God. It's been sprinkled. It's been done. The relationship has been restored. Your moral standing before God has been changed. Forgiveness has been granted. That's the picture here, that you're forgiven, that you've been forgiven. Listen, some of you can't forgive others because you don't know how much you've been forgiven. 
And think about how insane it is for you to not forgive yourself when you have the forgiveness of God. Like, who are you to withhold forgiveness when God Almighty has granted it through Jesus? I mean, practically, you fancy yourself above God when you do that, whether that's to yourself or to others. Forgiveness has been granted. That's the picture. You are forgiven. And so now, live the new creation. Live the new creation. I'm going to get to the the passage in 2 Corinthians in a minute where he talks about you are now a new creation in Christ. But before we get there, live the new creation, Hebrews 9, 27 through 28. And just as it is and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So live the new creation. This is where he's going to go in just 18 verses. He's going to go in just 18 verses, so you should live this way. You should walk this way. So we're going to get into don't forget to gather together and, and stir each other one to love and good deeds. Like we're going to get into all of that here very quickly in just a few verses. That's what it looks like to live this new creation that began for us when the blood was sprinkled. Now in this verse right here, he talks about this judgment coming. And just as it is appointed for man to die, and after that comes judgment. Judgment will come. There's a judgment. We will all face judgment. The question is, is will we be judged righteously or unrighteously? For those who have the blood sprinkled on them because it is Christ's blood and it's holy blood, we will be judged righteously or judged as righteous, I should say. And those without will be judged as unrighteous, unholy. Let me give you a couple practical points of encouragement here. At least hopefully they're encouraging to you. It serves as a warning. This judgment should serve for us as a warning. A warning for us to not make sinful and foolish decisions. I've said this many times before. Every decision matters because any decision could be the first decision and a long string of decisions where you one day find yourself at the judgment and the Lord saying, depart from me, I never knew you. It should encourage us to be humble. Encourage us to be humble. To be wise. To follow his word. Judgment is coming. Next, it should serve as an encouragement in this way. Sarah and I were having this conversation the other night. Why do we care so much about what those people think who will be judged one day as unrighteous. So those who will face God's judgment and do not have the blood of Christ on them, 
why do God's people care so much about what they think? Why? I mean, you understand that what will be judged is not just their person, but everything they've said, everything they've not said that they should say, every action they've done, every click of the mouse or stroke of the keyboard, every facial expression or sideways glance, it will all be judged. And it will be judged unrighteous, and they will proceed to bear the eternal wrath of God upon them for it. And so why do we as God's people care so much about what they think? It will be judged. It comes not from a heart that's been sprinkled with God's blood, but it comes from an evil heart that wants your blood Why? Because Jesus' blood isn't enough for them. That's why they want your blood. Why do we care so much? Their judgment means nothing. Our judgment, God's judgment of us is what means everything. Why in the world would we care a lick about what pagans think? We should care what God has said and care about it deeply. Judgment is coming. My next sub point, other than the uh, first one was judgment will come. The next one is this don't get saved again. <laughs> don't get saved again. I, I, I'm, I'm being snarky, but. Some of you may not have ever, quote-unquote, walked an aisle, and if you know what I mean by that, then you've probably been around churches a long time. Uh, If you don't, then that's okay. Uh, Yeah, anyways, I'll move on. Maybe you've never walked an aisle to get saved, but there are many days for many of us who live as though the atonement still needs to be made for our sins. We live as though I've got to get saved again. You say, well, I don't ever think that. What's that look like in my life? Well, for some of us, here's here's what it probably looks like practically, some examples. Maybe you beat yourself up. Like meaning you try to atone for your sins that day by beating yourself up, by chastising yourself, throwing yourself into the slums mentally and emotionally. Or maybe you make others pay for your sins. You blame it on other people. You want them to pay the price. They've got to pay the atonement. It's their fault. Or again, you shame yourself into depression or you worry yourself into anxiety. Or maybe you beat others up or shame them into the same pit to which you've moved yourself. Why? Again, because someone has to die for our sins. Our world is a world that searches, that is searching for scapegoats. We want someone to die for us. And so we usually pick the easiest target we can that requires the least amount of work to try and get blood out of it for our own feeling of saving. For some of you, 
It's yourself. That's the easiest target for you. For some of you, it's your spouse or your child. That's the easiest scapegoat that you can, you can get some blood out of. For some of you, it's the preacher. That was an amen. I just lost my mind. There it is. <laughs> but listen to what the passage is telling us. This is a once-for-all event. So why do you keep going to, to get that event to happen again, even in your own measly, pathetic ways? He says this event happened once and for all. To paraphrase St. Augustine again, Christ died to satisfy the justice of God. And now that justice is satisfied, he died to pay the debt. And that debt, having been paid, God's perfect justice, listen to these words, God's perfect justice can never come back for more. Why do you keep going back for more? Why do you want someone else to give you more? He say, he goes on, the accounts are settled. It is finished. The debt is paid. It's done. The problem is not other people. The problem is not the scapegoat you're trying to find. The problem is that your own flesh and your own soul doesn't want to believe that. It would rather believe that you're powerful enough to atone for it yourself. So you make someone else pay for it, or you make yourself pay for it. That's what your flesh wants to believe. It thinks it's that powerful. But it's not. Only the blood of Christ is enough, and that happened once. You can't make it repeat. The debt's been paid. It's finished. The account is settled. And you see in this passage, look what it says when he returns. And so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. So this is his return, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What's it mean? It doesn't mean that that sin isn't going to be judged at all. There will be judgment. He just said this. So what's he mean then? He means that for those under the blood... Jesus isn't coming back to deal with your sin. Did you hear me? When he returns, he's not coming back to deal with your sin. Why? Because he already dealt with it. He already took care of it. He already paid the price. He's not coming back to do that again. He already did it. He already did it. The debt's already been paid. He's not coming to die on the cross again for your sins. Instead, what's he doing? He's coming back to usher in the next phase of life where our flesh will be no more. Satan will be gone forever. And we'll be in our final resting place where there will be no sin any longer. It's a once-for-all event. Next, how do we like, like, 
rest in this. And I was reminded of this by one commentator. Your salvation is not in your faith, but in Jesus' work. Okay? Now let me walk us through this real quick. The weak believer is overwhelmed with the reality of continuing sin. Right? And that's, that's many of us in this room are often faced with our sin that we see each day and, and we're easily overwhelmed by it. It's, a, it's great, not in a good way, but it it's, uh, seems insurmountable. And so what happens when you see that, you see your sin over and over again, and the fear of payment for that sin continues to arise in your head, this impending judgment continues to arise. It's like, is it just around the corner? Is it just around the corner? Is it just around the corner? Judgment is coming. Fear, fear, and more fear. This is how we, many of us live. Someone said this over and over again. He seeks forgiveness out of the resources of his own capacity to believe and repent, a capacity that is limited and insufficient to the task. So what's it look like practically? Like what, what, what do I mean by what's this look like practically? Someone who's struggling with this. Seeking a conversion that will finally stick? If I just get saved and I just feel this way. Seeking an experience that will do the job or seeking a passion that will cleanse you once for all? But this commentator goes on, he says, if you were saved by faith... It would not be once for all because your faith is not reliable. Your faith is not dependable. Your faith is not unchangeable. Your faith is sometimes weak and sometimes strong. What is not once for all for you is once for all for him. That's what Hebrews is telling us. For him, the work of atonement was once for all. The blood applied once for all. The resurrection once for all. That's why, to bring this a little full circle, that's why this event itself cannot happen again. It's a once for all thing. The peace that is once for all is not in us, but in Christ. Faith, then, is just the conduit by which his work flows to us. The same commentator, but our salvation does not rest upon that faith, but upon him of whom it can be said once for all, once for all. So we're a new creation. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. Just, just let these words wash over you this morning. From now on, therefore, we, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Does it say, so therefore, if anyone is in Christ, when Christ returns, he'll finally be a new creation? I don't see it in there. He's a new creation now. And indeed, if you don't understand what that means, here's what he means. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Not is 
only coming in the future, but has come now in the present. All of this is from God, so it's all his work. It's not our faith, it's his work. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to reconciled us to himself and gave us then the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, that transgression of God's law, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, which is the gospel. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Namely, believe in the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. We implore you to believe that. And he says, how does this reconciliation happen? He says this in verse 21 of the you're now a new creation passage. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's he mean? Jesus, who was perfectly righteous, made him to be sin, meaning he took our sins and put them on him so that we might become the righteousness of God. The old has passed away and the new has come. Listen, that's the picture in Hebrews of this cleansing of the heavenly things. The old age of death is gone and the new age of life has come. The old age of, of the relationship between God and man being broken is gone. And the new relationship, the new covenant, the new creation has come. This new life has come. The old has passed away and the new has come. Now when God sees you and he sees his dinner table, he says, come dine with me. Come eat with me. How does this change things? Very practically, just a few examples, there's a myriad. We live with gusto in our sanctification. We should live with gusto in our sanctification, meaning our repentance and faith and knowing the Lord and striving to know Him. Why? Because we're a new creation. Because now we live out this lively gospel in the life uh, this age of life that he has placed us in. We live with joy in all of our doings, even our sufferings, when it's for his name's sake. We live with boldness. That's why the author of Hebrews can say in verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are what? Eagerly waiting for him. If you're fearing judgment, as the unrighteous should, then you're not going to eagerly await. You're going to do everything you can to pretend like it's not coming. But those who are not fearing that eagerly await his coming. Why? Because he's not coming to deal with their sin. He already dealt with it. I don't have to worry about that. He's not coming to deal with my sin. He did it already. The last thought here, we should eagerly await the second coming. 
We should eagerly await the second coming. If you cannot eagerly await the second coming, then you should believe in the blood of Jesus Christ. You should live with anticipation. Let me give you this quick list of what this looks like to eagerly await by A.W. Pink. If you want this list later, I'm just going to roll through them very quickly. If you'd like to write them down, you can catch me afterwards. First, it looks like steadfast faith of his appearing, resting with implicit confidence on his promise. Second, a real love unto it, a loving of his coming, an ardent longing after it. Four, a patient waiting for it in the midst of many discouragements. And number five, a personal preparation for it. That's what it looks like to eagerly await. Let me end with this quote from Pink again. At his return, the efficacy of his once-for-all offering will be openly manifest. It means it will be on display like it's never been before. The question of his people's sins, having been finally settled at the cross, will be on display. He will then glorify his redeemed. Let me pray for us. Father, Father, by your strength, by your grace, by your sovereign hand, give us the minds to believe, the hearts to cherish, and the hands to go do in obedience. I thank you that us, a sinners, miserably helpless sinners, have a God who's loved us so much that he would send his son to die for our sins. And that that son would take that blood and sprinkle it in the places we need it most. Father, help us to live in light of the new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Let us live in that new that has come. Let us remind ourselves each day, whether the struggle is from within or the struggle comes from without, where the sin and its temptation comes from within or from without, wherever it is, let us remind ourselves that the old has passed away and the new has come. How has the new come? Because the blood has been sprinkled all over it. Let us remind our own condemning souls of this truth. And let us remind those who seek to condemn us from without of that same truth. But let us eagerly await you, having no fear of judgment, because you've already dealt with our sins. And may we tell those who should be fearing your judgment, may we be honest with them, and then may we show them the hope of the good news of Jesus that can deal with their sins once and for all right now. I ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.